When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. I just rolled in from uh, two hours away to get my second shot. On the um, Chattanooga Choo Choo. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really, really well. And... Got the second shot today. Got my nanobots in my body. Feeling well. Gonna get my uh, get my 5G connection. My Bill Gates uh, gonna start running Windows on my system here. Then you're to report to duty in the Dulce base. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Reporting for duty in the Dulce base with the cattle and all that stuff because we have. You can hear him laughing. We have Adam Go Rightly with us. Um, Adam, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Greetings, humans. Yeah, greetings to you as well. Um, we were just talking a little bit before in the little pre, uh, pre-show pre thing that we like to do, a little ritual. We were just talking about how many times that uh, I've had you on, and I'd say it's probably got to be a good six or seven at this point, because mm-hmm. I've had you on your own shows individually, and then we've also done several roundtables with you, which, by the way... There was one of those roundtables that you actually saved our asses. Because oh, I had, I had the recording? Yeah, you had the recording going, and uh, we had, like, total power outage. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. So we disappeared, and you and Aaron Gullius and Red Pill Junkie just, like, kept going for, like, 15 Yeah, minutes. yeah. While we were gone. <laughs> yeah, you guys held it down. <laughs> Yeah, Adam Go Rightly. Uh, that was an honor to actually have Adam Go Rightly like host my show for 15 minutes, because like I've listened to your stuff for an extremely long time. I used to drive around at night, uh, delivering, listening to you, uh, to your like unta- was it Untamed Dimensions? Yeah, Untamed uh-huh. Dimensions. Yeah. So, like I said, you were one of the first persons I wanted to get on the show. So, welcome back, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Always good to have the uh, crackpot historian. So, you have a new book out called Saucer Spies and Kooks. Actually, Saucer Spooks and Kooks. Saucer Spooks. And- UFO disinformation in the age of Aquarius. Yeah, and this is a far-ranging book. Uh, you managed to pack in a lot of material in about like two hundred something pages, and I'm pretty impressed. We actually talked about this you were actually working on this book like six years ago Mm -hmm. (laughs) when i had you on for like the hundredth episode and we were talking about some of this material so it's kind of been a long road as far as like getting this book out and you know this thing's at least five years in the making so 
you know, what kind of led you to like writing a book about like the Dulce base mythos, which I guess the book is centered along around that, but it's not entirely about that. So, yeah, that's kind of where it uh, started. And I write about a, a fellow named Talvesk in the book who I had the opportunity to meet. And he was a um, critical player in uh, propagating the Dulce base mythos. I met him back in 2007, I think it uh, was. And at the time, uh, I really didn't know his involvement in the whole Dulce base mythos. And so that's all kind of revealed in the book. But at that uh, time, I was just working on an article that was 2007, 2008, called My Breakfast with Cal. It's just a uh, fascinating, interesting uh, character, and that ended up being a uh, chapter in the book. And uh, so, yeah, part of the story was his involvement and the involvement of a lot of other people in, uh, as I said, propagating what we'll call the Dulce Base uh, mythos. So I started uh, looking into that. Uh, you know, I was familiar somewhat with the Dulce Base uh, story back in the day, but uh, I, around that time, uh, 2008, 2009, took a deep dive into the uh, story and all the uh, various allegations, uh, conspiracies revolving around uh, Dulce. And basically that deep dive was like to separate the fact and the fiction. I was uh, working on an article at that time called Deconstructing Dulce. So yeah, that's, that was over uh, 10 years ago. And so I'd work on it for a while. I figured it'd be like a 10,000 uh, word uh, article. But I was also working on other books, you know, so I'd yeah, end up right. setting it aside for a couple of years and probably... Uh, you know, then pick it up again. And when I talked to you guys, whenever you said that was 2015, 2016. I, yeah, it was like December 2015. I, think. <laughs> I yeah. was getting back into it and I thought, oh, I, I was close to finishing it. But as it goes with a lot of these uh, projects, more, I, you know, uncover it, more information and uh, interviewed more people that uh, led me to other people and other information and you know it could go on forever but yeah finally finished it up here recently and got it out of my hair the labyrinth of rabbit holes yeah there's a lot yeah underground rabbit holes right so where you start off in the book um you start off with the whole like saucer crash mythology and I know that like a lot of people say that, you know, well, the saucer crashes, they happened in the forties and all this, but the way that I look at all this stuff, like this kind of like mythology really kind of starts in like the seventies. So this is kind of what really kind of gets the ball rolling. I guess this, this thing is like a snowball that just gathers more and more until it becomes an avalanche. Like we start with some small little things that people are speculating about, and then it becomes just ridiculous. Um, so let's kind of talk about some of like the saucer crash mythology, kind of where that starts. Yeah, I get into that a bit in the uh, book. Uh, a lot of people point to a book by a guy named Frank Scully called 
Behind the Flying Saucers, which was published in 1950. And uh, it actually, it, uh, the first uh, versions of this were in a Variety magazine article that Scully published, and it later became this uh, book, Behind the Flying Saucers. And it had to do with information he got from a couple uh, sketchy uh, characters, uh, one of whom was this millionaire oil guy called Silas M. Newton, who claimed that uh, he had a contact, uh, Dr. G, who had examined the remains of uh, some type of uh, saucer crash. And so this story uh, really developed back then and the uh, site of the saucer crash, according to this original story, you could call it the origin story, was in Aztec, New Mexico in 1948. And so that's kind of where the crash uh, saucer mythos, a lot of people can pinpoint where it started. It was later... Uh, discovered to be a hoax, big surprise there, but uh, later saucer crash stories uh, seem to resemble closely the uh, story uh, documented or presented behind the flying saucers. You know, there was a uh, ship that uh, crashed and the government came in and hauled off the remains, and uh, which include little alien uh, midgets involved in the crash all of this with they're little aliens adam yes oh sorry be politically correct there and uh and so this would closely resemble uh other stories that emerged in the uh, late 70s one of which was the uh, fabled roswell crash right which kind of starts really with um stanton friedman really Mm-hmm. Is the first person that really gets into that and finds Jesse Marcel, which at the time, the only thing that's really there is just the, the field of debris and kind of how weird the debris is. But then it just it just kind of gets more and more um, involved and complicated as it goes on. And I, think, and I think in the popular consciousness, like most people would think that it was the popularization of that was actually sooner but it wasn't it actually like comes later and like Roswell was, wasn't even known about by most people at all. No, it was kind of a, you know, a little uh, tidbit in uh, history. And you know, there was a buzz about it at the time back in uh, 47, but it, you know, the popular story we all have known to, uh, you know, uh, been uh, uh, know about really emerged in 1979 with the book uh, Incident at Roswell or Roswell Incident. I always forget the exact uh, title there. And it was based on, as you mentioned, uh, Stanton Friedman's research with another uh, ufologist writer by the name of uh, Bill Moore. Um, yeah, and in the early accounts of uh, Marcel, there was no uh, mention of aliens. That uh, information only emerged later as the story developed and uh, other witnesses came forward. Right. I remember there was a meme going around a couple years ago pointing out that Reynolds Rap was also founded in 1947. <laughs> oh. So it just makes you think, you know. <laughs> That's interesting. That's another rabbit hole. <laughs> well, you know, Guy Malone, he uh, talks about 
like his like what happened it really happened to Roswell and like get some pretty compelling evidence that like some of that material was stuff that actually was available at the time like that had been like even invented in like the 30s that stuff that could like you could crumple up and could return to like an almost pristine form and he does some pretty compelling research on that and like if you're there like 1947 and you haven't seen anything like that or it's kind of like you don't know about it you would think it's something from another world so yeah and that's where it gets a bit uh, murky with the whole story you know originally uh uh, the buzz was it was an alien craft and even some news reports uh, at at the time were uh, saying that but then a short time afterwards uh, Marcel did that uh, newspaper article you know where it, it looks just like a uh, some type of uh, flimsy balloon with some foil type uh, material or whatnot of course Afterwards, as the legend grew that, you know, that was part of the conspiracy, it was a cover up cover up of sorts to claim that it was a weather balloon to hide, you know, the uh, true quote unquote, uh, true story of the uh, Roswell crash where which included, you know, dead aliens in the wreckage that were uh, cordoned off and hauled off by the military to uh, who knows where exactly right Patterson Base is one of the uh, places uh, UFO lore uh, pinpoints to that they were there at Hangar 18 or wherever it was where the material was taken to. Yeah, the famous Hangar 18. So we get to like the cattle mutilations. And this is where we kind of start getting into the Dulce base. Yeah. So like the cattle mutilations happen and there's some like you know, there's some genuinely weird things about the cattle population. Oh, for sure. Also in New Mexico. Also in New in Mexico. Southern Colorado, yeah. Mm-hmm. So h- how does how do we begin with, like, the cattle mutilations and, like, Linda Moulton Howe? And was it Gabe Valdez? So, uh, I mean, it was going on in that uh, general area, northern New Mexico into Colorado. And... Uh, you know, a pretty large uh, region was being hit. And one of those areas was Dulce, which I really focus on in the book. And that was in uh, the mid-70s, uh, around 76, I think they started. And a lot of these uh, mutilations, which uh, Gabe Valdez, who was a state trooper there in uh, New Mexico, uh, a lot of the cattle mutilations that he began investigating because they were on his watch and in that uh, general area, in many cases, seemed to be associated with a strange phenomenon, lights in the sky. And uh, so, you know, the story of mutilations and UFOs began becoming connected at that time. And also there were reports of also like military black helicopters at the uh, scene. So, uh, you know, a lot of s- the speculation uh, became, well, are they UFOs or, or is it some secret government uh, project? Even uh, Satanists got uh, entered right. into the mix and or, you know, aliens working in, com- in uh, cahoots with the uh, government. 
But and uh, so how the Dulce Bass story evolved, we probably need to uh, talk about Paul Benowitz and Myrna Hansen. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about let's talk about Myrna Hansen first. Well, uh, in May of 1980, uh, Myrna Hansen and her young son uh, Sean, I believe his name was, is an infant kid. They were driving through uh, Eagle Nest, uh, New Mexico. And they saw a uh, flying saucer, alien craft of some sort, and a tractor beam came down and sucked up a cow into the ship. And shortly after, both uh, uh, Myrna Hansen, who was like in her mid-20s, and her son also got sucked up into the uh, ship where they saw a, uh, the cow being mutilated, very uh, grisly and graphic. And at that time, as well, she was... Uh, placed into some type of trance and there was a some type of uh medical procedure uh done on her then uh, afterwards she was uh obviously horrified by what had gone down and she contacted the uh, local uh, law enforcement in cimarron which was near eagle nest new mexico and uh the local cops didn't know you know what to how to deal with this, but they knew Gabe Valdez was the go-to guy for this kind of weird stuff <laughs> related to uh, cattle mutes and uh, strange craft in the sky. So they contacted Gabe. Gabe in turn uh, contacted uh, Paul Benowitz, who we can talk about a little more uh, later, but uh, oh yeah, we got to yeah. Benowitz had an interest in cattle mutes and. Uh, UFOs and was a member of APRO, the uh, trying to remember the uh, Aerial Phenomena Resource uh, Research Organization. I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, which is similar to uh, MUFON back in the day, a pretty big uh, UFO organization. And uh, it was through Benowitz that they brought in uh, this. Uh, hypnotic regression therapist by the name of uh, Leo Sprinkle had been doing uh, regressions for a number of years at that point. Anyway, they took, uh, Benowitz took um, Hanson under his wing to trying to help, help her out. And they did a series of uh, regression sessions in uh, Benowitz's uh, garage uh, as part of this uh, they did it actually in his Lincoln town car. They covered it with uh, completely with foil because Benowitz uh, at, for some reason or another became convinced that the aliens might try to interfere with the uh, regression sessions and try to block uh, Hanson's memories. Now, as these, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. As these recession or these uh, regressions transpired, more information uh, came out. And uh, one piece of this was that uh, she recalled being uh, transported to an underground base uh, somewhere that uh, was uh, an alien underground base where she went underwent, um, you know, more of these medical procedures and had a uh, implant uh, placed at, into the base of her skull. And uh, at one point, she broke free of her captors and came across all these vats filled with 
like alien hybrid babies and uh, this grisly weird experiments, which it appeared that the uh, aliens were involved with. <clears throat> and so uh, ultimately, Paul Benowitz uh, began to believe or uh, ultimately believe that this underground base was the Dulce base that's located on the Hickorya uh, Indian Reservation. Yeah, that's the one thing, too. Like, how does Benowitz get involved with UFOs? Is, is He starts to see strange lights around. It's like it's around, he's around Albuquerque, I think. Yeah, so he lived in Albuquerque, right adjacent to Kirtland Air Force Base, where all kinds of stuff was going on uh, during that period with the uh, testing secret craft and uh, also uh, developing these advanced laser communications and this type of stuff. And uh, Benowitz was a physicist and he owned a company called uh, Thunder Scientific. And uh, uh, besides that, as I mentioned, he had an interest in uh, UFOs and cattle mutes and whatnots. And he he, he began seen strange lights over Kirtland Basin, in particular the Monsanto uh, weapons uh, facility, which at that time uh, was the largest uh, cache of uh, nuclear weapon components in the uh, U.S. And so he was aware of that and he saw these lights over there and filmed them and took photos of uh, UFOs and also began... he construct this array of listening uh, equipment that was picking up signals and transmissions that over time he began, became convinced that they were connected to these strange lights he was seeing. So he contacted the uh, security there at uh, Kirtland base and let him, let them know what was uh, going on and he his desire was to get a government contract to further research uh, the uh, UFOs but uh, so, but he ended up kind of getting the cold shoulder from uh, the officials there at uh, Kirtland or at the very least they, they didn't seem to be interested or take him uh, seriously so he kind of uh, escalated his campaign to reveal what was going on there and started contacting different uh, politicians, a couple of the U.S. senators in New Mexico, uh, one of whom was Senator Pete Domenech. He also fired off uh, letters to Ronald Reagan, another big uh, political mucky mucks. He had developed uh, during this period, a, a paper called Project Beta uh, that later became the name of a great bishop's fine book on this right. uh, subject. And uh, part of uh, this Project Beta report uh, began talking about uh, the underground base and how he was developing a space gun of sorts to uh, deal with the uh, alien uh, scum and uh, basically defeat them because he believed they it this was basically an alien invasion that was happening and he then inserts himself into this cattle mutilation scene right 
Uh, yeah, he had been uh, involved in the cattle mutilation scene for a while, actually, and that's how he uh, came to know uh, Gabe Valdez. I recount uh, in 1979, there was this big uh, cattle mutilation uh, conference at the uh, Albuquerque uh, Library, and I think that's where he first met uh, Valdez. Adam, are, are there are there any pictures of like the billboard outside the cattle mutilation conference? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I could ask uh, David Perkins. He was uh, there at the conference, and he's. I was just talking to him recently. He writes the foreword to this uh, book. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. he he has. Uh, he just told me recently he had the whole transcripts of that uh, conference. I I would, wasn't aware of those. Uh, there was uh, tra- transcripts of everything. Um, but I'll ask him if there's any uh, photos. It was a pretty wild uh, scene, as I recount in the book. And uh, so anyway, it was there that Benowitz uh, met uh, Gabe Valdez, started going out to uh, Dulce uh, on ride-alongs, you know, some of these midnight ride-alongs where they would see these strange lights in the uh, sky. And so Benowitz became uh, interested in uh, Dulce, you know, during that period, 79, 80. And as uh, time evolved, he began to uh, suspect there was some type of uh, base there. He, uh, and that's where we kind of get to the involvement of uh, Richard Doty in all of this. Right, yeah. And Richard Doty is like very, very key to this whole thing. Um, one of the best documentaries I've seen on the UFO subject is Mirage Men, which goes into this like completely. But yeah, we got to talk about Richard Doty because this is the the prime example of disinformation and just like flat out just messing with somebody's mind. You know, Richard Doty is extremely good at it. And so... Uh... Bill Moore kind of enters the uh, picture, uh, too. We had talked about the uh, crash saucers and his involvement in writing the uh, incident at Roswell book. And so uh, when that book was published in 1980, uh, Moore was approached by a uh, mysterious intelligent uh, intelligence uh, officer by the name who's going by the handle of uh, Falcon. I get mm-hmm. later on in the book we get into more of uh, Falcon and the aviary. But uh, anyway, uh, Falcon approached uh, more uh, with the offer that he would uh, share some top secret UFO information with him if uh, more would assist him in infiltrating the uh, UFO uh, community, basically to assess uh, perhaps national security risks among those involved in uh, ufology. And uh, also part of this uh, ended up uh, in more passing along some questionable uh, documents that were part of the, of the, uh, counterintelligence uh, campaign or disinformation program. And uh, a lot of those uh, kind of uh, 
supposedly leaked documents that falsified to show an alien menace were passed on to uh, Paul Benowitz. And uh, so Doty himself began interacting with uh, Benowitz. Doty was with the AFOSI, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and he was based out of uh, Kirtland uh, Base there. And according uh, you know, to a lot of people who've looked at this, one of whom was like researcher Kristen Lambright, who has a very good book on the subject too called Ex Descending. The uh, motivation behind this, and Greg Bishop uh, pretty much, uh, I think he's on the same page with Lambright, is that they were trying to uh, divert Benowitz's attention from Kirtland, where there was a lot of uh, testing of secret technology and push him out towards uh, Dulce Base or that area where they could be uh, more easily perhaps manipulated. And uh, one of the things that got his attention, uh, according to uh, different reports, is uh, Doty took him on a helicopter uh, ride, flew over uh, Dulce where he pointed out uh, some areas that, uh, you know, it was suspected there was an alien base. And so Benowitz himself was a licensed pilot. And afterwards, he began a bunch of uh, reconnaissance over uh, the Dulce base and uh, supposedly started seeing stuff that led him to suspect that uh, there was indeed a uh, alien base there. And he started tying all of this information uh, together. In one of the uh, early reports, uh, he uh, Benowitz, I think he sent this to Senator Pete Domenici. This was around 82. He was talking about uh, evidence that he uncovered about this base and that there had been some type of confrontation there late uh, 79 or 80, he said, where uh, the U.S. government lost control of the base to the aliens. This information would later uh, play a large part in the uh, Dulce base mythos that uh, really began uh, circulating in popular culture in like 1989. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, source of... Uh, Benowitz's information or how he was getting uh, fucked with has to do with a, a computer that was allegedly passed on to him by J. Allen Hynek of all people. Who was, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Who yeah. was still working for the government then, you know, Hynek of uh, Blue Book fame. And this information came initially from Bill Moore. He, they were having adult beverages at one point and Heineck shared this information with him and later appeared in uh, Greg Bishop's book. Greg broke the uh, scoop, but I've talked to other people since then who actually saw this uh, computer. It was a computer with the software program embedded in it that uh, allowed uh, Benowitz to talk to the aliens. And that's where he was getting a lot of this uh, his information, he was supposedly, or so he thought, direct uh, talking directly to the ETs through this computer and was also seeing images of what they looked like. 
And this has been confirmed by a few people. Uh, Greg Valdez, uh, who's Gabe Valdez's son, they visited uh, Benowitz one time and uh, saw him talking to the computer and getting messages from it. And Richard Doty has also confirmed this. Of course, uh, got to be uh, careful <laughs> with anything uh, Doty goes on record yeah, about. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Just a proven disinformation agent. Yeah. But here's the thing about Benowitz. Was there any time that he thought to himself, am I being messed with? Or was he just such a true believer that he just, like, to phrase the X-Files, I want to believe, which, by the way, all this mythology goes into the X-Files. This is all in the X-Files. Every bit of it. Every yeah, bit of totally. It. <laughs> yeah, I should... Uh... Back to Myrna Hansen for a second. I'll answer your yeah. other qu question about Benowitz. Uh, yeah, a lot of the uh, pieces, parts, components of her experience, yeah, fed right into a lot of the stuff we s saw in uh, the X Files. Uh, you know, and by the mid '90s, when that uh, became uh, popular, you know, we had the. Uh, connection to cattle mutilations and missing time and she had an alien implant and there was a medical procedure done to her and, uh, and also the whole thing about the underground base and all the hybrid uh, human alien babies all that later emerged in the X-Files and you know bits and pieces of this were in other accounts but uh, Berna Hansen's <laughs> Uh, experience seemed to have uh, all the all those uh, pieces in it, you know, all those parts that later, uh, you know, would become so prevalent in uh, pop culture. Um, and as far as Benowitz, did he feel he is being messed with? Uh, well, he felt the aliens were messing with him for sure, mm -hmm. and. Uh, who knows uh what he really when he went off the uh deep end uh towards in the mid eighties or so he felt uh he was uh convinced that uh e t s or men in black were uh breaking into his home and shooting him up with uh drugs and uh so yeah. he was he was really a mess i'm sure he in his uh but uh you know, that, that was kind of the uh, design. There was a document uh, called uh, this Aquarius Memo that uh, Bill Moore, uh, Doty passed to Bill Moore in, uh, I forget the exact date. It was, it was early on there, 80, 81. And uh, the original version of this didn't have any mention of of aliens and uh, there was a second version that was uh passed on to uh bill moore that uh mentioned eight ets in it and moore began to suspect or so he said that uh Doty had basically fabricated or added this et element to an official government document and Doty wanted uh more to pass it on to uh, Paul Benowitz and Moore was initially uh, reluctant to do this, but at uh, one point Doty said either pass it on to him or we're going to end our arrangement uh, with you. So reluctantly Moore passed it on. And what the intent of the uh, document 
what uh, more later said was basically they wanted to get this into uh, Benowitz's hand. So he'd call a, uh, some type of press conference and blow the whistle on it and use it to uh, discredit him. And so, you know, that could be seen as a lot of the reason for the disinformation campaign or counterintelligence uh, campaign was that, you know, Benowitz was uh, actually picking up some uh, classified information and with, you know, picking up all these signals and things going on, these coded signals at uh, Kirtland, which were basically, uh, uh, one of them was related to this laser program communicating with satellites and it was, uh, yeah, it was probably SDI stuff. Yeah, early early on, and mm-hmm. so uh, you know that was part of the uh, intent or motivation uh, to discredit him because if he came out with some of this information at some point, you know they could just point to him and say he was nuts. Uh, yeah. He thought he's picking up these alien communications. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's really important to stress like why the hell these intelligence people would be interested in. UFOs and UFO people. And like one reason is that so many of them are either in or interested in aviation. Uh, there's a lot of people who are like either in or on the periphery of like the military industrial complex. They have little companies that are trying to get contracts. And then they, um, you know, when all this real, uh, base interest starts and people start all this UFO watching outside of these bases, they're like seeing, um, you know, possibly uh, experimental aircraft and then Benowitz is like intercepting signals. So there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, they would be interested in these people who would seem just to be really marginal. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I get into it uh, quite a bit in the book. Yeah, there's a lot of people in ufology who are also involved and probably still like this quite a bit uh, involved in uh, you know uh, with uh, government contracts and uh, aviation even some of them were working on the parts of the stealth program though they didn't have the uh, big uh, picture but that that was part of the interest and you had uh, oh man going back definitely in this back in the 70s but even before that a lot of foreign nationals uh Basically, Russians and uh, Chinese uh, getting involved in communicating with, uh, you know, these different folks within ufology who belong to these different UFO organizations. So that, you know, that goes back to the arrangement with Falcon and Bill Moore that they wanted him to infiltrate ufology to find out uh not only to spread disinformation and confuse people, but to find out who these different uh, folks in uh, ufology were communicating with, you know, uh, such as these foreign nationals to find out uh, what they might know to pass on information to them. Like in uh, some cases, uh, I mean, example is uh, say you have some UFO quote-unquote UFO photos, but it's really uh, 
some stealth technology or something to pass some of this on and see what kind of reactions, if they could get a sense of how, uh, how much, uh, you know, different foreign spies knew about uh, programs, but, you know, yeah. and also to pass on uh, some bad information to confuse them about these various uh, different stealth projects and other things uh, the government was involved with. I know it's speculated in Mirage Men that um, some of the things that Benowitz may have been seeing was like early drone technology too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm curious, the, this computer though, I mean, and that he said that he saw like the, the alien forms and all this type of things. I mean, could we speculate that this was since, I mean, Doty gives him this computer. <laughs> I mean, can we, can we speculate that these are the air force guys like just messing with him on this thing? Or <laughs> monitoring him as well. Uh, it was uh, Hi- Heineck that gave it to him. Uh, Right. Supposedly. Um, right. And uh, I mean, there was other weird shit going on at Benowitz's uh, house, too, uh, that uh, Moore and uh, Doty claimed to have seen uh, little orbs that yeah. would show up <laughs> from time to time. And uh, there's one account that uh, Doty and some NSA supposedly was also involved in this national security agent agency. And uh, a lot of times they are stationed at military bases. You have uh, NSA, which is, and so, uh, and Benowitz was seen as a possible national security uh, threat or, you know, potentially. And, uh, Anyway, Doty and uh, these NSA guys uh, broke into uh, Benowitz's uh, home at one point and saw these orbs there, you know, and they all went, looked at each other. Uh, Doty had seen them before, but this was the first time the NSA guys saw them and they were asking Doty, are those yours? And (laughs) he was asking (laughs) them, no, no, are they yours? No, so. But once Uh, again, (laughs) who knows (laughs) what to uh make of all this but uh you know what uh so this thing like this computer uh with the uh software and these orbs you know they would also mess with his mind but they could also be uh surveilling and tracking what he was up to i was going to be facetious and ask you earlier if it was the promise software but uh (laughs) Yeah, I mean that the whole thing is interesting. It sounds a little bit like too that he there's a targeted individual aspect of this because I mean I don't know, have you read Robert Guffey's Camellio? Oh like, yeah, it, great book. Yeah, oh yeah, it, it sounds very very similar. Mm-hmm. So we get to um, we get to MJ12, and we'll talk about a little bit about the MJ12 documents. Um, Bill Moore is also behind this as well he's a part of this this whole process well uh he's associated with it for sure is he behind it uh who knows is Doty behind it a lot of uh people have speculated you know about the M- mj12 uh papers but they mysteriously mysteriously uh, showed up 
on the doorstep of uh, Jamie Chanderay, who became uh, Bill Moore's research uh, partner in the early uh, 1980s. And this was uh, 1984 when they showed up and, uh, and it was uh, basically on these stuff on 16 millimeter film that they uh, developed and uh, discovered they looked like they were these classified or secret documents about this MJ 12 group who had briefed uh, president Eisenhower back in 1952, I think it was uh, on uh, the alien, the ET threat, and UFOs, and also in there was information about uh, the Roswell crash and uh, aliens uh, dead and alive that had been pulled out of the uh, wreckage. And uh, so these, uh, you know, in a, one thing these documents did, if you know, was to confirm. <laughs> The story Bill Moore had written about a few years before that is documented in the Roswell incident. So it's kind of a self-confirming uh, loop. The, uh, right. the package were th that ended up on uh, Shandera's doorstep was postmarked uh, Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico. And so, mm. you know, a lot of people think that pointed back to Doty, who did have a uh, history with uh, sketchy documents e even prior to that. Man, Doty was an extremely active guy, wasn't he? Like, he's doing a lot of stuff. No one's, e no one's ever proved. <laughs> wow. Who, who was behind the documents, though? Well, that's something interesting. A lot of this, of everything this book revolves around this, like, cottage industry of these fake or semi-fake documents or like this pseudepigrapha of, of either government documents or witness statements of mysterious witnesses who no one ever knows who they are. And some of this stuff comes to light later and, and even like counterclaims to authorship. And it's like, yeah, uh, there was a, like a series of documents in the first uh, one that really started uh, Moore's involvement with this before he met up with uh, Falcon or Doty had to do with this uh, thing called the Weitzel letter, which uh, I think APRO uh, got a copy sent to them in 19, in July of uh, 1980. And what it uh, documented was a uh, sky, uh, what do they call him, Civil Air Patrol cadet by the name of uh, Greg Weitzel, who had been out with his Civil Air Patrol group, and they saw a UFO land and some creature get out of it and bop around and then uh, take off. That's what was in this letter. And it also said that they... Uh, returned uh, after they were done with this outing. Uh, and uh, in the outing, I'm trying to remember, they said it was, uh, where did it take place at? Uh, I'm trying to pull up the uh, 
letter now, but part of it was the uh, cover. There was actually an incident that happened in uh, Dulce that uh, this letter was talking about, but all the a lot of the facts had been changed. So it was kind of like a, more of this disinformation. And in the letter, it talked about a Mr. Uh, Doty, D-O-D-Y, and there's all these uh, weird kind of things that kind of pointed back to uh, Doty as well and more uh, looked into this letter and found out it was a hoax and uh, apparently uh, his analysis of it is what came to the attention of uh, Falcon and uh, Doty as well and they thought well if he was uh, more was a, stu a student enough to uh, determine this document was a hoax, then he could be of value to them, which uh, I think was one of the uh, things that initiated their involvement together. Okay. Yeah, it's um, all these different things that are getting weaved. And I, I want to also, um, since I like to uh, attribute things to people that uh, do the research, uh, Nick Redfern, you know, has done a lot of research on um, – the MJ-12 documents. And one time we had him on last, I think the last time we'd had him on, like he, he had some interesting stuff about that. There were actually some like, that might've been done by like Soviet intelligence as some misinformation. So I thought that that was, I thought that that was pretty interesting as well, that that's, that that could be a part of it too. Well, and part of the deal is there's this, there's different letters or there's been different series of MJ-12 related documents that have emerged over the years, and they may or may not be uh, connected to each other. You know, there was the first series with uh, right that were associated with Bill Moore and Stanton uh, Friedman. Then there was the uh, material that uh Redfern got access to and I'm trying to remember of the uh character who uh, uh basically uh, was the one who uh was the source of that uh, material his name escapes me right now but then you know you have uh even more recently there was um more MJ-12 related documents that uh, Heather Wade, who was the one, mm -hmm. who, the one who was uh, Art Bell's producer for a while and took over her show, his show. And uh, she eventually kind of uh, had some type of meltdown and was going to raid Area 51. And then she kind of disappeared. But uh, <laughs> I remember that. That was very recently. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I think. Four or five years ago. And uh, she said she received uh, some MJ-12 papers from a uh, trusted uh, source. And uh, they were uh, even more outlandish than previous versions of MJ-12 uh, materials. And you had uh, there was like this uh, oh in the uh, 90s there was a uh, crash retrieval uh, document that came out a manual for uh, crash retrievals which is also kind of in the MJ-12 wheelhouse and mm -hmm. once again they mm -hmm. those materials uh, uh, I think the guy named the researcher was named Berliner 
ended up with the materials in the same way that uh, Jamie Chanderay came to him on these uh, basically a 16 millimeter film that he, he had uh, he had to develop and uh, you know once again anonymous sources nobody can track this uh, stuff down but you know they for sure made a big impact on ufology uh, most uh, well good number of people think they're hoaxes but then uh, there's still a lot of uh, True believers who buy into this uh, stuff, Linda Howe, for one, you know, yeah, is a big proponent of that that, uh, so-called crash retrieval uh, document. Which she was messed with Dodie. Uh, Dodie kind of messed with her as well, you know, like uh, the the crash retrieval stuff. Is that the same as like the um, the the the, like the, the fire department? how to like retrieve UFOs. Is that what you're talking about? Cause I've seen that on a document. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's like this like weird document of like for like fire departments to like, you know, no, ret- no, no. Ret- retrieve this- crash. <laughs> I'm serious. It actually exists. I'm not, <laughs> I didn't dream this. <laughs> Richard Doty told me. So, <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about the aviary and also, um, the UFO cover-up live, which is one of the greatest television events of all time. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. So I actually pulled up here who is in the aviary from your book. Uh, this is mm-hmm. from page 88, which I was going to ask you and put you on the spot, but I figured I'd just put, put it up. So um, you have listed here Richard Doty with Sparrow, Robert Collins as Condor, Ernie Kellerstrauss as Hawk, Interesting thing is our friend, Dr. Future, Mike Bennett actually worked at Wright Patterson for Keller Strauss. Oh, no shit. That's, that's bizarre. It was, it was one of his, he was a civilian contract worker for the air force. And he worked uh, doing like, um, it was like fire control and suppression. And I think I'm pretty sure it's Keller Strauss that he said that he worked for there. Uh, Dale Graff as Harrier, John Alexander, Penguin, Jamie Chandra, Woodpecker, C.B. Scott Jones, Chickadee, Dr. Christopher Kit Green, who's in all the SRI uh, material, as Blue Jay, Dr. Hal Pudoff, who's also SRI, as Al, Dr. Ron Pondolfi as Pelican. So these are some of the guys that were also involved with the whole UFO cover-up live show back in Mm -hmm. the 80s. Yeah. Uh, So uh, basically the story behind the aviary was that it was this uh, group of uh, intelligence insiders and also, uh, you, you know, different uh, ufologists, scientists, kind of this the ad hoc uh, group that uh, got together to uh, basically uh, share, share their knowledge uh, with each other. Apparently, the, all of them had little pieces of the uh, puzzle. And so, you know, the intent of the group, at least, uh, you know, one way it's presented is that they were just trying to uh, bring about UFO disclosure and uh, inch inch humanity closer to the truth of uh, UFOs. Others have uh, basically placed more nefarious uh, 
things on this uh, group that they were, you know, involved in uh, a huge disinformation uh, campaign and uh, activities of that uh, nature. And, you know, as far as who they are and their names, their code names, I mean, those, it, it depends on how deep you go into this and who you talk to. Uh, I, I kind of uh, put this together uh, from available information that's been out there over the years, but uh, some of the code names at times are interchangeable and uh, some people claim they were part of the group. Others who have been stated and alleged to be of the aviary deny involvement. So it's, it's pretty, it gets pretty damn confusing. It was kind of a big thing in the uh, late eighties when they, uh, this group was kind of revealed and talked about it. Everybody is trying to uh, figure out exactly what was going on and who was involved. And uh, as you mentioned, John Alexander has been linked to this group. And at the same time, Alexander was involved with the aviary. He's also had another uh, group called the Advanced, uh, what were they called? They, they've been had a, a few different names, the advanced uh, physics uh, group that around 1980 was a similar ad hoc group that was talked about in the uh, book by uh, Ralph Blum called Out There, I think it uh, was. He was a uh, journalist for the uh, New York Times, and uh, they were basically kind of doing the same thing that the uh, aviary was, but it was an actual group in the military. And uh, originally in the book, it didn't mention John Alexander, but uh, Alexander later was revealed as the one who headed up that kind of uh, ad hoc uh, group looking into UFOs. So that's an excellent book, by the way, I've read that book. And uh <sighs> You know, some people have pointed to the possibility that aviary was kind of once again one a cover story of what was uh, Alexander was really involved with, or perhaps some type of disinformation operation. A lot of these players really go back. There was an involvement. There's recurring themes, you know, that the uh, psychic component or remote viewing. Uh, kind of plays a big part in the uh, in the overall story presented, you know, in my book. And uh, Hal Pudoff and Kit Green, you mentioned SRI, they were involved with Yuri Geller back in the day. That was the uh, in the early uh, 70s. So you have all these characters. I mean, Alexander as well, uh, that has this long history uh, interest in psychic phenomena, UFOs, but also non-lethal technologies and different uh, type of technologies that can alter consciousness. And so, uh, and, you know, the remote viewing is uh, an interesting aspect of all of this too. Del Graff, who is... Uh, supposedly hairier within this group, the aviary. Uh, 
had a, a group of remote viewers at Wright Patterson uh, Air Force Base. Uh, I think it went as uh, like in the early as early as uh, like the uh, beginning of the seventies that they were doing. Uh, some uh, non-official remote viewing and uh, it has been said or alleged that it was Del Graff's group who remote viewed the Roswell crash. And I've always thought that, well, that was pretty interesting that uh, perhaps uh, the Roswell MJ-12 papers were actually remote uh, material that was remote viewed and they put the MJ-12 papers out there to find out if they could actually uh, prove or get more evidence, have people come forward that can, could confirm what uh, Del Graff and his uh, group was uh, remote viewing about a Roswell crash. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's, that's interesting. I don't, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't think I went. I don't think I went there in the book. Yeah, it, that that almost like they're trying to like get confirmation of what they actually saw or that what they yeah, huh? I mean, that would be one way of uh, doing that. You know, they remote viewed this stuff, but they can't they can't can't prove it. Maybe somebody else within the government uh, knows. Let's release these documents that. Uh, and uh, from our remote viewing sessions and present them as the real deal. And yeah, see if we can get some type of uh, confirmation from somebody about it. So, you know, in the aviary, maybe they actually uh, half believed or, you know, were, uh, this is one of the things they were trying to get to the bottom of, you know, of material that was coming through uh, their research into uh, psychic phenomenon, uh, remote viewing, uh, you know, to confirm um, some of the stuff that was being remote viewed. So UFO cover up live, we get to that. And some of the, of course, the aviary is involved in this as well. Uh, of course, you know the classic blacked-out faces and the in the computerized voice, which is always always fun. Uh, this pretty much is like we talked about the X Files. I mean, this is the X Files, like before the X Files happened. Yeah, like I don't remember this. I mean, I might have been like twelve. I don't know, maybe twelve years old or something when this came out. But like. But what I do remember, and I will add to this, is that there were these two documentaries about like maybe six months or a year apart from each other in the early 90s that were, uh, were Is Elvis Alive documentaries hosted by, hosted by Bill Bixby. And these, were, these were essentially, if you watch UFO Cover Up Live, it was essentially the same thing. It was like, if you have any information... 
about about UFOs and aliens, about the government inter- of involvement, call this number. And then the other one was, if you have any information on whether Elvis is alive, <laughs> call this number. So it was just very much the same. It, it had the exact same format. I'm just... I'm just putting that out there. Mm-hmm. And you can find all these treasures on YouTube, people. They're all there for you to enjoy, including the Geraldo Satanic Panic uh, special, too. So if you really just want to have a good night, those are the four things you should watch. <laughs> yeah, I got to check out those Elvis uh, yeah. things. I, oh, I think I remember seeing them back in the day. There's something. They're perfect because they're just like, they they have the the reenactments of the Elvis sightings, and there's like even one at one point where like somebody sees Elvis at a bar, and like Elvis just like walks slowly <laughs> into the light and disappears. It's just the same kind of just like, you know, in search of unsolved mysteries kind of television. It's great, it's it's excellent. Anyway, not to derail everything. <laughs> yeah, but it just reminded me very much of that. And, uh, yeah, part of it, you know, uh, Bill Moore had a pretty large role in uh, UFO cover-up live. It was hosted by Mike Farrell of uh, MASH fame. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stanton Friedman's in it, as well as uh, Jamie Chandray, and also uh, Falcon and Condor two uh, supposed members of the aviary. I don't believe they even called them in the, uh, talked about the aviary in the uh, show, but uh, these two characters were like in the shadows and their voices were scrambled and they were alleged uh, military intelligence people. And they basically repeated among other things, the, the, UFO crash uh, story and how uh, there was an alien that survived and all this led to uh, kind of uh, human ET exchange uh, program. And uh, one of one of these guys was, like I said, referred to as Falcon. It was later revealed to be uh, none other than our old friend uh, Richard Doty. Right. Even though Doty uh, denied this, and I still think he is uh, has uh, continued to deny this over the years. Uh, or uh, on other times, he has said, "Well, I was just being a proxy for the uh, real Falcon." Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But a lot of the stuff that uh, would emerge on UFO cover-up live would uh, basically, uh, you know, become uh, etched into uh, UFO lore. Uh, One of the first mentions of Area 51, I think, appeared in uh, UFO cover-up live live as well as they get heavily into uh, the whole MJ-12 Roswell uh, crashes well in that as well and uh, also the uh, Cash Landrum uh, crash which uh, Doty was also involved with so all of this seemed mm-hmm. seemed to be uh Basically, the culmination of this uh, counterintelligence uh, disinformation campaign that had been going on since uh, 
the late uh, 70s, and uh, it all kind of uh, played out on uh, UFO cover-up live. And uh, among that uh, was the uh, guy named Robert Emenager, who talked about in 1975, he was approached uh, yeah. by the military. He had done other documents. He was a uh, TV producer and him and his uh, co-producer, Alan Sandler, I think his name was, were approached at uh, one point to do a UFO documentary in that uh, the Air Force and also other branches of the military were interested in working with them on this and that uh, they would provide them with top secret uh, documents and whatnot and also uh, film, uh, film footage of an actual uh, saucer landing with ETs and uh, mm -hmm. and so they uh, began this collaboration on this uh, project which ultimately ran aground when at the 11th hour the uh, uh, for some reason, the Air Force uh, pulled out of the project, did not deliver the uh, goods and left them uh, hanging and uh, left them high and dry. And so you've seen this pattern play out uh, time and again through uh, ufology where, uh, you know, UFO disclosure is just about to happen. And at the last minute, the uh, rug gets pulled out from under the uh, feet of the uh, participants and they're uh, in some cases discredited or made you know to look bad and the same thing happened uh, uh, Emenager uh, still with Emenager in the military happened in the mid-70s and uh, in the early 80s the same situation happened with uh, Linda Moulton Howe and this is after she had uh, had success with her uh, documentary on cattle mutilations called The Strange Harvest. She was working on a, another project, and she'd been tapped by HBO to uh, produce this uh, UFO uh, documentary. And she was interacting with uh, a lot of these players, uh, Paul Benowitz, trying to get uh, his story. Uh, she was interested in that. Uh, the association of cattle mutilations with uh, uh, UFO uh, sightings. And so uh, she was approached or she approached Doty at one point and uh, they had a, a secret meeting, which I talk about in the book. And Linda Howe has uh, also recanted this recounted this story many times where she was basically kind of offered the same deal as uh, Bob Emenager. She was shown uh, documents, many of which sounded like uh, the material that would later uh, rear its head in the MJ-12 documents about uh, crash saucers and a secret program and an alien in captivity, et cetera, et cetera. And also she was promised uh, film footage once again, a uh, UFO landing and like military big wigs uh, meeting with uh, aliens out on a tarmac uh, somewhere. And uh, as in the uh, Emenager uh, episode, the same thing uh, happened with uh, Linda Howe. Eventually, she was strung along and uh, left 
left out, uh, left high and dry, left out to uh, uh, kind of uh, blow in the wind. The uh, promised goods were never uh, delivered, and uh, ultimately her uh, HBO uh, UFO documentary uh, never came to be. Immenegger claims that he saw it. Does he claim that he saw it? That they just told him that that. Uh, well, I believe. I believe he saw some of the footage, and okay. later that that his documentary uh, was produced, but it didn't have uh, the actual aliens in the uh, film footage. Uh, but I think uh, some some of that uh, footage, but it's not very impressive what he ended up uh, with. You know, it's right. just one of these kind of vague shiny lights in the sky that could be anything. Yeah, Eisenhower wasn't shaking hands with OH Krill. No, none of <laughs> none of that happened. That wasn't they were sharing a strawberry ice uh, strawberry ice cream. And so you see this uh, same uh, scenario play out time and again in ufology. Right. Of the much promised UFO disclosure uh, coming any day now. Hmm, and familiar. Th- yeah, and the uh, researchers who get uh, tangled up in all of this later end up with egg on their face and, uh, you know, are discredited. Um, in addition to the ripples left by um, this television special, um, there's another big media influence in the uh, the Billy Goodman radio show, which he really took advantage of all these people around that scene. And uh, this is kind of like the prototype for Art Bell. Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, and that was one of the things I happened upon the uh, Billy Goodman happening, it was, as it was called, and I guess that was 89. And originally we were talking about Elvis before uh, – The show was uh, originally called The Thing, and this was like it uh, in, uh, what was the uh, station out of uh, Las Vegas, and Billy uh, started the show in early 89, and it was just kind of a uh, call-in show, and he was uh, looking at strange stuff like, uh, was Elvis still alive? He had some guest on there. It was Elvis Presley Jr., (laughs) <laughs> forget what the deal was and you know they had an interest in uh woo woo uh, ghost stories and this type of uh stuff and at uh some point uh area 51 became a deal you know and uh he had uh bob lazar showed up on the uh, program quite a bit and you had this whole cast of characters that became prevalent in ufology during this period uh bill cooper and uh other characters i talk about in the book and it became uh kind of a uh, really popular regional show and like i said i just happened upon it back in the day i had a ge super radio and i'd <laughs> uh go through the am dial and it was broadcast late at night so it covered a huge uh area and so i became an avid fan of this and basically uh you know the whole uh, 
Area 51 and Bob Lazar drama played out over the uh, airwaves on the uh, Billy Goodman happening back in the day. Uh, it started out, uh, it was like from uh, originally the show, I write about this in the book, it was like from 8 to 10 at uh, night, but then they kept changing the hours and there was like stories of bomb threats and all this stuff because Apparently, Billy was uh, uh, just uh, releasing or, you know, having these people on his show who were blowing the whistle and the powers that be were becoming concerned about it. Uh, Goodman also led some uh, of these trips out to Area 51 when it became uh, the thing to go out there and uh, witness the, the craft you know this was before it got uh, shut down so basically uh, the goodman show was ground uh, zero for this whole uh, scene back in the day and ultimately uh, they kept changing the hours until he was on like from 3 a.m to 5 a.m and was like what, what's going on <laughs> here a bad slot this was a hugely popular show but he's getting uh, dicked around uh, by uh, who knows there was a lot of rumors and all of a sudden he the show was off the air and he was gone <laughs> and uh actually uh yeah art bell was aware of the show and he's he's he had mentioned billy goodman a bit over years that they had been friends so it was it definitely seemed like uh you know this became a later influence on Art Bell. You could see, you know, how a show of this nature could become wildly popular. Yeah, I like the part in the book where you have the transcript of the uh, him talking to this worker at one of the ba- the supposed bases. <laughs> yeah. Like, he, the guy doesn't know that he's like, – apparently they're acting like the guy doesn't know that he's on air, you know. And he'd get a lot of uh, calls like that of, <laughs> you know uh, – People claiming to be uh, workers at Area 51, insiders. One of them was called Yellow Fruit, uh, who uh, shared a story quite similar to uh, the Dulce base security workers there that he was at a base with uh, a dual base that had humans and aliens working there and that there was a confrontation at one time. And, uh, you know, so he, (laughs) there was all these so-called anonymous whistleblowers who would call into the show, uh, sharing the revelations of, uh, what was going on at area 51. I talk about the meeting place, uh, was the, Rachel Bar and Restaurant, which became the uh, Little Alien, as it became known. And the groups would gather uh, before they'd go out to Area 51 at the Little Alien. They had uh, different conferences uh, back in the day where, you know, all the whistleblowers and people revealing what was going on would uh, meet the Norio Hayakawas and Anthony Hilders and Bill Cooper and... uh, Sean David Morton was a player back then. And, you know, they were taking, they'd take bus trips out to uh, Area 51 and uh, witness these uh, strange areas, aerial spectacles uh, going on, which, you know, became a huge phenomenon. Once again, Billy 
Goodman was at the uh, center of all that. It's like some great radio. Is there? Oh, a, was. Are those recordings available anywhere online? Like that, in particular, that that call with the bass worker. Um, some of them are. Uh, I would just love to hear that interview. <laughs> I I have it. I'll, I'll put it up at uh, some point. I have at my Chasing UFOs uh, blog uh, awesome. something c- called the Dulce, uh, or it's called the Saucers, Spooks, and Kooks resource uh, page, and I have links there to different aspects of the uh, books. And I've I've been thinking of putting uh, posting that uh, yellow fruit. Uh, episode actually there was a few episodes with uh, yellow fruit and uh, as i talk about in the uh, book uh, one of them i suspect the caller yellow fruit was actually my friend uh, old pal talavesque of dulce uh, base fame <laughs> pretending to be uh, the security worker uh, yellow fruit and there's a uh, there's like three or four of the yellow fruit episodes and uh, <laughs> one of them uh, features Bill Cooper as well. That's a good segue to Tal Levesque and this breakfast that you had with him and John Rhodes, who I completely forgot about. I used to hear him on coast to coast a lot. He was, he's the reptilian hunter. Uh, yeah. Crypto yeah, hunter. Yeah. 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 But he mostly hunted reptilians. <laughs> that was his thing. Make some alligator <laughs> shoes. <laughs> so you had an interesting, like, I guess, steak and eggs with these two guys, huh? Yeah. So this all, I mean, this whole adventure started with uh, getting an email from uh, someone who I, di- I didn't know who Tal was at this point, but uh, I got an email in uh this was 2007 or so from somebody saying, uh, Hey, I'm uh, working on a, doing some research, uh, trying to drum up interest in a uh, TV series called mysterious Mariposa. Mariposa is a uh, town, not uh, far from me here in the, the woodlands of central California. It's kind of the beginning of the gold rush, uh, on highway 49. And, uh, anyway, the email basically asks, uh, Hey, we're uh, doing some research, hoping to put together a, uh, television series. Wonder if you know, uh, have any information about strange happenings in around Mariposa somehow, uh, email sender, uh, Found out I had, you know, was involved in the scene somewhat of uh, paranormal 40 and stuff. And he also said that uh, he was the producer uh, for an underground base episode on the program UFO Hunters. And so, you know, I got to get a lot of email from people. It's, you know, uh, some legit, others just, uh, you know. <laughs> Who knows? And so I was a bit, uh, a little bit suspicious. So I contacted uh, Bill and Nancy Burns and gave them the uh, email handle, which was Quest Tal. And they said, oh, yeah, that guy knows things. 
and I soon discovered it was Tal Levesque, whose name I'd kind of heard about over the years and uh, his association with uh, underground mysteries and uh, Dulce Base. And so anyway, decided to meet, uh, get together over a uh, breakfast and uh, learn more about what, what, uh, Tal and his buddy John Rhodes were uh, up to, and that's the chapter in the book, My uh, Breakfast with Tal. Was there any interesting revelations that he... <laughs> well, I mean, one of the revelations he claims that he had an encounter with a uh, reptoid back in, when was it, 1978? That's one of the more uh, colorful acts, aspects, and that this... Uh, uh, reptoid was uh, from uh, below the earth or from outer space. It wasn't quite uh, sure, but it became uh, apparent through my, you know, with this breakfast meeting of the minds and also subsequent uh, emails, what a major player uh, Tal was in the whole Dulce base uh, story. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, Benowitz back in 82 had talked about in one of his letters, uh, his suspicions of this base in Dulce and how there had been a, a confrontation of some sort. And this later bits and pieces of what uh, Benowitz was talking about emerged in the Dulce papers, which uh, came out in 1989, which John Lear had a hand in. And at the time, and I'm getting back to <laughs> Tal here in a second, but, uh, and this, you know, these were like uh, six, seven pages of kind of crude rendering, hand-drawn things of uh, a Dulce uh, base and the hybrid aliens and the VAT and that whole bit and a story about a security worker who had blown the whistle on what was going on there and had secreted out uh, videotape and photographs and other uh, evidence out of uh, Dulce base. And uh, Lear claimed at first he was given these uh, materials, these Dulce papers by a man, but then he later, the story kind of evolved over time and claimed it was a lady by the name of Ann West. And so subsequently, more information came out about who Ann West was and her story. And this was shared by different writers, like uh, Branton was one of them, and William Hamilton, Val Valerian. And uh, as it turned out, it was all kind of the uh, same story that got repeated with little different variations and uh, Tal Levesque was like the originator of uh, much of these uh, stories. And you had, you know, these different people like uh, sharing similar stories. It was this big confirmation loop and Tal was kind of the guy behind the scenes. But the story came, the story was that this lady, Ann West visited uh, a guy named Thomas Castello in Santa Fe in 1979. At the same time, uh, she visited her, her friend Tal Levesque, who was also living in Santa Fe in 1979. And uh, 
uh, at that time, Castello, who was a security worker at some shadowy facility, uh, claimed his the uh, uh, San West told her that he felt his uh, life might uh, be in danger and that he encountered some really uh, disturbing stuff. And so uh, Ann West visited uh, Castello and also Tal at this period. Tal was also working as a uh, security guard type a guy for the same firm, supposedly, that Castello was. They knew each other, but uh, they didn't work at the same place. Kind of curious. But uh, anyway, Castello uh, came up missing at one point, and uh, he'd been involved in some type of uh, confrontation at uh, Dulce Base, and he recontacted... uh, the San West and shared with her all of this material, these photos, you know, videotape and stuff of this con- and uh, talked about there had been a confrontation, what later became known as the Dulce War, where 66 uh, humans were killed when they uh, <laughs> tried, when they found out what was going on with all this uh, horrific uh testing going on at the Dulce base that was part of this secret treaty between the humans and the aliens. The aliens were uh, giving their human counterparts exchanging advanced technologies, and in return, they were giving given humans to experiment upon, and uh, thus began this whole alien-human hybrid. The This alien race was a dying alien race, so they needed to do this hybrid stuff to uh, continue their species. And there's also stories about uh, drinking the precious bodily fluids of Uh, babies to keep the aliens alive. I've heard that one before somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds familiar. So where I'm going with this is, uh, (laughs) so this was the story that had emerged with the Dulce papers and these other background and uh, how uh, Tal had kind of been uh, on on the fringes of uh, what was going on with this lady, uh, Anne West and uh, Thomas Castello, he became aware of it and uh, once again he became one of the uh, people uh, basically seeding this story into ufology along with uh, John Lear in recent years it's emerged that uh, Ann West is uh, actually a lady named Cherry Hinkle who I interviewed a uh, few years back and uh, you know but I, I over the years, I would ask Tal, I began to suspect that uh, basically this Castello character who later, uh, you know, Phil Schneider picked up on the same story and repeated the same claims right. been involved right. in, you know, this. He stole the stick. Yeah. And uh, I began to see what looked to me is that uh, Castello was kind of a composite character put together. Uh, partially based on uh, Tal Levesque and Paul Benowitz, kind of a combination of those two. Tal 
over the years claimed that he had worked as, you know, kind of the shadowy uh, security worker at top secret installations. He had knowledge of uh, this underground uh, network of tunnel systems and bases. And apparently that's, you know, why Castello was living in uh, Santa Fe. The claim was that a bunch of the workers from Dulce lived in Santa Fe and they used this uh, shuttle system to go back and forth. And uh, this was kind of a, a lot of these old caverns and stuff were uh, kind of uh, been there for many, many years and that there were these like uh, alien races living them in them long ago. And, you know, in more recent times, uh, uh, the government got involved and were using some of these uh, excavating and uh, connecting all these different underground bases that are also connected with the aliens. And, you know, I, what also emerged uh, with my breakfast with uh, Tal was that he had been uh, friends with Richard Shaver back in the day with the whole Duro story of the Bingo. Uh, underground <laughs> creatures. And back in the seventies, uh, Tal and his wife, Mary Martin had put out a zine called the Ho hollow earth uh, hassle, which uh, published from like the uh, mid seventies into uh, the early 80s. So uh, he had a long history in a lot of this uh, hollow earth underground entities, which kind of morphed their way into a more modern version with the uh, Dulce Base story. And he uh, also uh, had a lot of knowledge about, uh, you know, the, the whole thing with uh, Dumbs, they call them deep underground military bases and the uh, those uh, different machines that ran the Rand Corporation tunnel boring machines that were being developed. And remember, the a lot of the blueprints emerged in like the 90s and was later published in a book uh, by a guy named Richard Sauter called. Uh, underground uh, bases that's where a lot of this dumb material i remember that i remember that book yeah but uh these blueprints and all this rand stuff came originally from uh tal levesque and he's the one who passed them on to richard shavers tal's thing was always to be a man behind the scenes so he has uh front people who passed on the information john rhodes is one of those uh, Bill Cooper, uh, John Lear, uh, and a lot of these other guys, Branton, and I mentioned before Val Valerian with his Matrix series of books, Bill Hamilton. Uh, we're all interacting with uh, Tal Levesque, but uh, as I stated, Tal, uh, because of, uh, for one reason or another, he uh, he's uh, didn't want to be known as the key uh, person promoting a lot of these stories. Yeah. And Phil Schneider also, he's one of the, the first one that I ever heard a lot of this stuff from. And Tal claimed that he uh, was the one who provided all that, you know, Dulce base material originally to Phil Schneider. I mean, 
Uh-huh. Tal said a lot of this. Well, I gave all these different people this stuff, and some of that I'd been confirmed. Other thing, other I'm not positive about his interactions with Phil Schneider, but Schneider, however he got that material, was yeah, was basically riffing on the uh, Tom Castello story of being part, being involved in the. Uh, Dulce War, and that's how Schneider supposedly lost a few fingers and got a nasty uh, chest scar because he got in a fight with these uh, laser beam welding <laughs> white Draco uh, aliens who were <laughs> the overseers of Dulce. Phil Schneider was also a great patriot, too. He, he always liked to remind people of that every time. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a great patriot. Didn't he? Um, didn't he die mysteriously? Didn't he like strangle himself or something? That's what I've always heard. Yeah, I write about it. Get about write about it in the uh, book uh, too. Well, I mean, it, it depends. Anybody who's you know uh, etched out a place in conspiracy lore like he did, or, you know, people are gonna believe that he was. Uh, suicided but uh, there was some oddities around his death and part of that uh, i mean he he had some mental issues but he also had uh, actual health issues you know and uh, during the autopsy it was discovered that it was a catheter was wrapped around his neck that hadn't been seen mm. when he was originally uh, when the cops originally uh, found him you know and so a lot of people including his wife started saying that yeah he was the deep state got to him and etc etc gabe valdez did a lot of investigation into a lot of these claims related to dulce and you know found out some interesting stuff about uh schneider that uh, at the time he was supposedly working first he said he he was originally working at Dulce, then later uh, was working at Area 51 as as a ge- geologist uh, that he would go down. They'd send him down. He'd look at the rock samples so uh, they'd know what kind of explosives, whatever to use when they're building these different uh, bases. But uh, during the time frame where he was at supposedly at Dulce in Area 51, uh, he was also on Love to see that social security benefits living in uh, Portland. And uh, I talk about there's some FOIA documents, FOIA documents that have come out in recent years, and I have them posted, I believe, at my Saucer Spooks and Kooks resource page at Chasing you at the Chasing UFO blog. But anyway, these FOIA FOIA documents revealed that in the uh, 70s, uh, Snyder came upon, he was at a bar or someplace and met some guy who gave him some uh, bunch of rocks that turned out to be radioactive material. Uh-huh. And he was sleeping with these under his bed at home and supposedly doing experiments oh. or, or whatever. And the FBI caught wind of this. And uh, that's how Sh- uh, Schneider came to their attention back then. Also in those uh, uh, FBI uh, reports, 
it was discovered that he was uh, basically in a mental health facility for a while. He was a self-mutilator, uh-huh. hence, hence the reason he had uh, right. some of his fingers cut off and the uh, chest scars, etc. And yeah, Gabe Valdez confirmed a lot of this uh, stuff too that, uh, you know, uh, this false history created around himself was, uh, you know, just uh, perpetuated uh, delusion, but also a little bit of grifting going on there too. Uh, He used uh, part of the thing you'll see in uh, Schneider's materials are these uh, documents that uh, are on like official Navy stationery that apparently his dad and his dad plays into the story too. His dad wasn't the Navy, but uh, apparently uh, maybe it wasn't Valdez, but Norio Hayakawa had a source that confirmed that uh, Sh- Schneider basically absconded some of this uh, old blank Navy stationery and wrote some of uh, the letters uh, that uh, basically uh, letters he claimed his father had written that backed up a lot of his wild claims, you know, letters that uh, got into like, you know, uh, mashup of the Philadelphia experiment and Montauk and uh, also the Dulce Bay story and all the greatest hits. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's kind of uh, Phil Schneider who's yeah. uh, featured in a uh, chapter called another flash gun hero. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and you know, um, Schneider to me always kind of, he, he kind of seems like he's really kind of like that precursor to the Martian super soldier. Mm-hmm. That, that That's kind of come down in recent years with, with, I, with Corey good. And I had one on conspiracy normal. I had a uh, captain K on way back when. Corey Good stole his uh, his stick too, but uh, yeah, it was all this this kind of like the Montauk, uh, Al Belik kind of stuff. You know, they they uh, they age regressed me and sent me back through the time tunnel and all this all this yeah all, all the stuff that really happened, right? Yeah, and there's there's variations to this confrontation story. Uh, there's also a version uh, Bob Lazar claims that uh, he saw some briefing memos that talked about a similar confrontation or war that uh, happened at uh, Area 51. And uh, one thing interesting in the Costello version, I talk about the flash gun that uh, supposedly a pretty kick-ass uh, weapon that allowed him to escape the uh, Dulce War. This thing could vaporize and levitate and do all kinds of uh, wonderful things. And um, it dawned on me recently, I don't think I wrote about this in the book. It was like another thing that came out of the original Benowitz uh, material that that, at one point uh, when he was putting together his Project Beta report, he talked about a space gun he was uh, developing this is Benowitz mm-hmm. that he said it it's proven that it will destroy the aliens and uh, he was working on developing it and so it you know it sounds similar to all the stuff that you know 
Tom Castillo's flash gun that later uh, materialized and was, you know, talked about in the Dulce papers. Like you said, it's all just so self-generating. Like as soon as one person has one piece to it, it'll get endlessly recycled and integrated into someone else's story. Yeah. yeah. So this stuff comes into the QAnon uh, material now. Like you, you briefly mentioned it when you were talking about how, like the they live on the blood of of the oh, young yeah. or, or whatever you know and and, the, and the, the deep underground military base material is also in the QAnon. So this stuff has been is is still around. It just it's it's being constantly recycled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was another thing with you know the, some of the stuff Cooper Bill Cooper was coming up with and others. It uh, seemed like uh, you know later David Ike. And kind of the hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod thing that uh, Cooper at one set time said the aliens had big noses, you know, and that they oh, were drinking. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of the uh, blood libel. Yeah, same thing you well, hear uh, time and again. That's important to show, like how, of course, you know, Cooper was originally a UFO guy, and how how much the the UFO stuff was still part of the militia movement and the new world order mythos. Um, yeah. it, was, it was a big part of it. And like, I guess you, you pointed out how, um, I guess Tim McVeigh even went to like a protest at, at, uh, area 51. Mm. Yeah. There was definitely some, uh, crossover. Yeah. On the, uh, Cooper, uh, McVeigh, uh, meeting was, you know, that's certainly an eyebrow, uh, razor, uh, McVeigh, uh, like you said, he went out. He had, went out to Area 51, but also uh, Waco, Waco, when that whole thing was going on, and uh, paid a visit to uh, Bill Moore. Gave Moore a uh, copy of the Turner Diaries. Apparently, uh, McVeigh had a uh, bunch of copies that he was, he was handing out to uh, different different people. <laughs> but the uh, box of the Turner Diaries in his car. Yeah, but uh, yeah, part of the overlap there with militia groups or uh, kind of right wing uh, groups and UFO and interest in UFOs kind of happened during that period I was talking about with uh, Billy Goodman and all these guys uh, that uh, having conferences, Little Alien, and having these trips out to. Uh, Area 51 during that uh, period, it was, uh, part, you know, part of it was you had, uh, that's when, you know, these stories about the whack and hut guards uh, that were there, uh, basically running out a lot of the uh, people who were going to watch the UFOs at Area 51. And uh, part, part of the uh, interest you know he had like anthony hilder he's another kind of long time john bircher and like i said uh cooper was there and there was a group that norio hayakawa started and uh part of it was in protest because they were starting to get pushed out by the uh these whack and hut security guards and they were claiming it was, you know, they were hiding something that was a threat to uh, national uh, security. And it was, you know, more of that kind of uh, uh, 
protests you'll see uh, nowadays uh, on the left and the uh, right about the overreach of the national uh, security state, right. you know, those, those type of issues. So that was kind of the overlap and how uh, ufology uh, did this fusion with uh, right-wing militias and anti-New World Order types and like the, the whole U- uh, UFOs were kind of tied into this. They were being kept secret from us because of, you know, whatever reasons. There was some secret treaty with the aliens or they were, it was a cover for hiding this uh, technology, New World Order technologies. Or like an economic angle with this like technology that could eliminate scarcity, but the elites still want to, you know, keep it away just like they did to Tesla back in the day or something. Yeah. I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, without giving too much away, how you wrap up this book. Me and Adam both really liked um, because it has to do with everything we've really been studying for the last few years. And the the idea that, uh, you know, people are really interacting interacting with a type of chapel perilous with this material and that it can be dangerous to really become obsessed. And um, also just to me, I wanted to add an anecdote that when all these guys were in their like heyday of, you know, creating all these documents and these building these myths, like it really reminds me of like the late 19th century occult world where you have all these people, you know, building myths and and have mysterious texts and mysterious figures and and organizations in the background pulling the strings you know competing for power and like um it's there's something else to it you know and you really point out how a lot of what this stuff is about is something else not just ufos yeah that's uh that's the afterword of the uh book called Adventures in uh, Chapel Perilous and uh, kind of uh, gets into a uh, theme about a lot of characters I've written about over the years, Carrie Thornley and uh, oh, on and on and on, James Shelby Downard, these type of uh, characters. And Benowitz was one of those uh, who went across uh, uh tried to cross the abyss and got trapped in chapel perilous. However you, you want yeah. to uh, phrase it, get, went a bit too deep uh, down the uh, rabbit hole, uh, looking at whatever. And we all can find ourselves in that uh, kind of uh, same place where you, uh, the uh, point of uh, going too far when you, you can never extract yourself from uh, called a rabbit hole or a chapel uh, perilous because you uh, invest too much into whatever uh, belief system. And, uh, you know, there's a certain point where, uh, like I said, I've been there. I talk about Greg Bishop in the book as well. And, uh, you know, I think we were both at one point or another staring into that, uh, Abyss, you know, when you're researching whatever the uh, subject for me, uh, 
subject is for me. It was kind of mind control, the uh, research and uh, whatnot. And uh, part of it is there's a looking into these topics, there's a bit of synchronicity that happens sometimes where all these odd patterns start coming together, which it seems like it's more than uh, coincidence. I've often had this experience working on different uh, projects where I uh, keep going farther, farther, deeper down into the research, the rabbit uh, hole, and you did, it could, uh, you know, drive drive you mad at some point you need to uh you know step back and have some uh perspective but there's a fine line it's easy to cr cross over i got i got close to that uh point but uh you know it's uh just uh one of those deals that uh some people kept on uh, going or, you know, never able to uh, get out of it. And, you know, looking at uh, conspiracies and all these things, there's uh, certainly a beneficial aspect where you're opening up uh, new thoughts and new ideas, you know, and there's a potential for growth and uh, expansion or, or whatever. But there's also a, a point when you, get too deep down into any particular rabbit hole that she once again be, becomes uh, tunnel vision and you're, you get to that point where you're not growing and expanding your mind anymore. And that's, that's the point where you need to step out of one rabbit hole reality uh, tunnel and start exploring others, not get locked into any particular uh, belief system. And that's kind of uh, uh, it's a uh, trap that's an easy thing for a lot of people to uh, fall into because when you you know get deep into research and think you've discovered the, the answer to a particular conspiracy, there's a certain amount of ownership and significance that comes into your life and you become part of that, uh, you know, conspiracy that you were, you know, trying to be a rational observer or investigator about, and you actually become a part of it. And that's, that's yeah. the, that's where chapel perilous uh, goes haywire. Like magic, it's contagious, even if you're on the periphery. Mm -hmm. Well said, Adam. I mean, there is, there is an alternative. Yeah. I struggle with that. I've done a few interviews now and that Chapel Perilous comes up and I'm uh, still not quite sure <laughs> I'm able to describe it as well as I do in the book. Okay. Well, this has been a great interview, Adam, as, as always. And we've barely scratched the surface of what you have in this book. So there's a lot more there. So uh, tell people where they can find the book. And also I'd like to note that uh, this is being published by the Daily Grail which is awesome. Mm -hmm. you, you could uh, one, go to the daily grill site and uh, find the book. And that'll link you up with uh, Amazon basically, where you'll find uh, the book. It's saucer spooks and kooks uh, UFO disinformation in the age of Aquarius. And it's uh, 
available both as paper book and as a Kindle. Excellent. And it's always great to have you on. What's next for you as far as like uh, writing? Um, still uh, working on the uh, James Shelby Downard manuscript you guys know about. So we are eagerly anticipating. Working on that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh, we'll go ahead and close out the show. I think, Adam, you're going to stay with us for a little Patreon segment about Project Serpo. And, uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank Adam Go Rightly for being with us tonight. Um, everybody, uh, if you want to become a Patreon, Serpio can tell you where to find that and uh, what we've got going on there. At patreon.com slash conspiranormal, uh, you can get a new episode every week. Uh, four or five dollars a month at the ten dollar level you join our mystic crew of conspiranormal and you get to hang out with us every month on a cool little zoom call in which we have uh, presentations and access to guests uh, festivities giveaways etc and at the uh, top of the mountain you can become a member of the ancient circle of strange realities for twenty dollars a month and receive all the uh, secret hidden wisdom, as well as getting a cool uh, exclusive T-shirt and a VIP experience at the Strange Realities Conference every year, which we have coming up. And we'll be announcing the actual lineup very soon. Um, but we've given out all the basic information already. It's going to be a hybrid event, uh, live in Nashville and streaming online. So either way you want to attend. Yeah, so by the time that this uh, this episode comes out, we should have uh, all that up on Eventbrite. $70 to come in person, $30 for the online event. So come join us October 15th through 17th in Nashville or online if you want to. All right, guys. We'll be back next week on Conspiranormal. Please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. 
For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to trylifemd.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.